Hi, this is Pastor James Strickland, and you are listening to our sermon cast for Homeland Park Baptist Church. We are in the middle of the book of Revelation. I'm going to go ahead and tell you, it's starting to get a little crazy. So just hang with me, if you will, and let's jump right in. Last week in Revelation 9, we saw the six of seven trumpets sounding to announce God's judgment upon the earth. And this is during the Great Tribulation, and we again have a pause or an interlude. We see here that, for example, when the seals were broke, the seven seals, the first six were broken, and then there was a pause before the seventh one. And here with the six trumpets, again, we have a pause before the seventh trumpet is sounded. And so what I want you to do is just think about it this way. Why are they having this pause? Well, the truth of the matter is, once the seventh judgment drops, it's over. Finished. Game over. No chance for a respawn. No chance for a do-over. No mulligans. It is over. And so God, in His majesty and in His grace and in His mercy, sets this pause here so that if there is anyone still wanting to repent, that they have time before that last judgment drops. And these pauses are great for building tension and anticipation over the seventh judgment, but they also represent God's mercy. So now we jump into chapter 10. We see that there is an angel and a small scroll. If you would, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 10. We're going to start with verses 1 through 4. It says, Then I saw another mighty angel coming down from heaven, surrounded by a cloud with a rainbow over his head. His face shone like the sun, and his feet were like pillars of fire. And in his hand was a small scroll, or some translations say book, that had been opened. He stood with this right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land, and he gave great shout like a roar of a lion. And then he shouted, the seven thunders answered. When the seven thunders spoke, I was about to write, but I heard a voice from heaven saying, keep secret or seal up what the seven thunders say and do not write it down. So in other words, God said to John, who was writing down this revelation, put your pen down for a second. I don't want you to record this. So what we see from this passage, number one, angels are among us. Did you know that there are over 60 references alone to angels in the book of Revelation? They serve as God's army to this earth to accomplish his purpose. Matter of fact, Hebrews 1.14 tells us that angels are sent to care for people who inherit salvation. I fully believe that when we get to heaven, we are going to see the works of angels in our lives, even today. That doesn't mean I think you have a guardian angel. We don't have guardian angels. We have God and God alone that looks out for us. We have Jesus Christ who died for us. And we have the Holy Spirit who lives within us and intercedes on our behalf. But one day we will learn all about that. But angels are known for their strength. Yet this one is being described is one of the strongest. In other words, he is the uh, Andre the Giant of angels, so to speak. If you remember that uh, wrestler. I don't know what it is, but when I have welded in the congregation, i got to talk about wrestling at least once, brother. But the truth of the matter is, is that 
don't miss the reference for God. Believe it or not, the book of Revelation is a very, I guess you would say, Old Testament-y kind of writing. There's a lot about the Old Testament in the book of Revelation. So when it says that there were clouds, we know that God was often represented. His presence among his people was often represented by cloud and fire. You don't have to go much further than when he led the Israelites out of Egypt and through the wilderness into the promised land. It says he led them by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. He was with them and he was leading them. And then we have a rainbow. Today's culture has made the rainbow mean something far different than what it was intended to be. A rainbow by scripture is a promise of God. And look at this. When you have clouds and when you have sun, the result is going to be a rainbow. Revelation chapter 4 verse 3, if you don't remember this, a few weeks back, Revelation 4, 3 said, The one sitting on the throne was as brilliant as gemstones. This is talking about God, like jasper and carnelian, or rubies. And the glow of an emerald circled his throne like a rainbow. So we see a rainbow at the throne of God, and now we see an angel with this rainbow over top of him. And again, a rainbow represents God's promise to never destroy the world by water again. So even in judgment, folks, even in judgment, God's promises and mercies are represented. Even as God is judging the world in the final great tribulation, we see his mercy. The angel represents God's dominion over all the earth. As you see, it said in verse 2, and in his hand was a small book that had been opened. He stood with his right foot on the sea and his left foot on the land and gave a great shout like the roar of a lion. And when he shouted, the seven thunders answered. Folks, we don't know the exact content of God's scroll. We do know that only Jesus was worthy to open it. We also don't know the context of this smaller book that this angel has. But many believe it is a condensed version of the larger scroll that has been unsealed. Some of you are old enough to remember cliff notes or spark notes, they used to be called, where if you had a book study you had to do, you didn't have to read the whole book. You could get that little pamphlet. It would give you everything you need for a report. But I'm sure the teachers probably saw right through that and could tell what you used. But the truth of the matter is, is that we don't know exactly what this scroll encompassed. We don't know what was representing, but we do know it was important because God placed it there. The fact that the angel's feet stood on the land and the sea, it represents his authority over all the earth. That's what that picture represents. And the feet uh, are, are strong, and we see that how his feet will affect both land and sea. And then also there's a reference to a lion, right? A lion was seen in that day as the, the premier beast of creation. In other words, the top of the food chain of the animal kingdom. And so if someone was considered a lion, that was a way of denoting power, strength, and majesty. And so in other words, in this revelation, we are seeing that this angel is representing God's power, majesty, and dominion over the entire world. God keeps hidden some information for reasons we don't know. 
You know, doesn't it drive you crazy when someone starts to tell you something and then they catch themselves and say, oh, I can't tell you. Doesn't that drive you crazy? That's almost as bad as preacher. I need to talk with you after the service. Don't do that to me. Just talk with me after the service. But when somebody says, ooh, I got to I heard. Listen to this. Never mind. I can't tell you. You just want to take a ring or neck. Tell me. Waterboard them or whatever you have to do to get it out of them. But um, in all seriousness, though, when we see this, I think of that movie, A Few Good Men. And you probably know that quote I'm going to where Jack Nicholson says somewhere to the effect. And I'm going to try to do it like he does it because I do a terrible Jack Nicholson impression. But he says, you want the truth? You can't handle the truth. Yeah, some of my God-fearing people have seen that movie. You want the truth, you can't handle the truth. And the truth of the matter is, folks, if God wanted us to know what was in the scroll, if God wanted us to know what was in this little book, he would have told John to write it down. But he said, no, partner, stop writing. This is too much. You can't handle what is in here? The people that are reading this, and when this preacher is preaching it at Homeland Park Baptist Church on February 21st of 2021, they will not be able to handle what I'm about to tell you, so don't write it down. And this is not the first time God did that. When God was giving a vision to Daniel in Daniel 12, he told him not to write down something. And when Jesus was talking to his disciples, he told them to not write this down. And so for us to sit around in our, our ivy halls and our coffee shops and our, our pews and try to decipher and figure out what was written on this scroll and the exact contents of this little book, I believe, just for me personally, I'm not, this is not lazy theology. I just feel like if God wanted us to know, he would have told us. Because that's the way God's word is. What he wants us to know, he has given us. And the Bible says that this is all that we need. Everything written in here, there is nothing to add to it and nothing to take away from it. Then we see the angel eat the book. Revelation 10, verses 5 through 11 says, Then the angel I saw standing on the sea and on the land, his raised hand toward heaven. He swore an oath in the name of the one who lives forever and ever, who created the heavens and everything in them. The earth and everything in it, and the sea and everything in it. He said there will be no more delay when the seventh angel blows his trumpet. God's mysterious plan will be fulfilled. It will happen just as he announced to his servants, the prophets. Then the voice from heaven, which, by the way, is God, spoke to me, who, by the way, is John, again and said, Go and take the open scroll from the hand of the angel who is standing on the sea and on the land. In other words, he's saying, go take that little book that's in that angel's hands. Not the actual scroll that only Jesus can open, but take this little book. You see, the sobering command here is the realization that all God has promised will come to pass. The events will not be pleasant. And ultimately, they will be amazing and eternal. But what we see, it says in verse 9, So I went to the angel, this is John writing, So I went to the angel and told him to give me the small scroll. Yes, take it and eat it, he said. It will be as sweet as honey in your mouth, but it will sour or turn sour in your stomach. So I took the small scroll from the hand of the angel and I ate it. It was sweet in my mouth, but when I swallowed it, 
it turned sour in my stomach. Now, I would not suggest you to start pulling pages out of your Bible and eating it like a goat. That is not the purpose of this passage. The purpose of the passage is to illustrate to us that just like God's Word, when we take God's Word into our life, it is pleasant, it is pleasing, and it is beneficial. But some of the things that are happen, are going to happen are not going to be pleasant, is what he's warning us here. You see, God's redemption is for everyone. God's redemption is for everyone. So why eat the book? Well, the reference comes from a vision God gave the prophet Ezekiel, where he instructed him to eat a scroll filled with judgments against the nation of Israel. So again, Revelation in the Old Testament are, are tightly wound together, especially the book of Daniel and Ezekiel. God's word is sweet to the taste, but those who refuse to eternalize its truth and refuse to repent will find the contents of it bitter, and it will bring their destruction. So I'll agree with Mike Stone, who is the pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church. When you read verse 11, check it out. It says, Then I was told you must prophesy again about many peoples, nations, languages, and kings. I hate to tell you this, but there will be people in heaven that do not look like you. There will be people in heaven that don't speak like you. There will be people in heaven that you don't identify with on this earth, but for somehow it will all make sense when we get to heaven. And what this pastor Mike Stone says is he's talking about his church and talking about the present climate that we are in in our culture. And he says regarding race, he says there's only one race, and that's the human race. And I thought, how well put, that when we see in this, that when we go to heaven, we're all going to be there. People that we identify with and people we don't identify with. Folks, when we look down on one of our brothers or sisters because of their color, their creed, or their culture, or whatever it is, we are going against the race that God has created us to be. We are all made in the image of God. So to downplay somebody else is to actually downplay yourself. Because if we're all in the image of God... That would be like a brother trying to cut down another brother's mama joke. You know, your mama is so, and your mama, you know what. Y'all are so spiritual, I know y'all have never heard those. But we got to be careful not to hurt ourselves by trying to judge other people. Then we get into Revelation 11. I told you we're moving today. We see the temple and the two prophets, or the temple and the two witnesses. Now, Revelation 11, verses 1 through 3 says, I was given a measuring stick, and I was told to go and measure the temple of God and the altar and count the number of worshipers. But do not measure the courtyard or outer courtyard, for it has been turned over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months, and I will give power to my two witnesses, and they will be clothed in burlap and will prophesy during those 1260 days. When we see God telling people to measure something in the Bible, it's to take ownership. It's for, for God to say, look, you are measuring something that I own. God is, instruct, God is instructing them to measure the temple because God is in charge. Now, we're going to go off into the deep woods just for a minute, okay? So, so, so hang with me. When we get to this passage, there are various numbers of tra- trans 
not translations, but interpretations of what this means. And many people, and I'm not saying they're wrong, and I'm not saying they're right. It could be a little bit of both. I don't know. But many people, when they translate this passage, they make it sound like that the, the temple that they are measuring is, represent, is symbolic. It represents the church. Now, here's the thing, is that Revelation definitely has a lot of symbolism and metaphors in it, but we must be careful not to overanalyze what John records here. You see, the church is referenced as the temple in Ephesians 2 in 1 Peter 2. So technically, if you wanted to say that God is measuring the church and he is counting the number of worshipers, that could mean that he's talking about the church as a whole, not Home and Park Baptist Church, but the church of the Great Tribulation. The believers that come to know Christ and worship Christ during the Great Tribulation, and that's what it represents. But here's the thing. If you say that that represents, that that temple represents the church, what does the altar represent? What does the worshipers, or who do the worshipers represent? What does the outer courtyard represent? What do the walls represent? You see what I'm saying? If you take just one thing and say, well, this means this, you're going to have to do the whole symbolism, not just one part of it. If you would, again, hang with me just for a second. This blew my mind, and I don't know if it will blow your mind, but we're going to go in it anyway. Maybe the temple is actually, I may be crazy, but the temple actually may be a temple. The temple actually may be a place that God is measuring with people who are in it. Now, David Guzik, who does a, a commentary series on the Enduring Word, I've pulled a lot of information over the series from him, and I really enjoy his, his commentary. And it says, he believes that this is an actual temple with an altar, actual altar where people are worshiping. If this temple in Revelation 11 is a representation of the church, why does it need to be measured? Again, as I said a moment ago, once you go down the road of saying this is symbolic, then everything else has to be symbolic as well. So here's the thing. Did you know, and I know this is true because I saw it on the Internet. All joking aside, these are some reputable sites that I I saw. Did you know that there are Jewish groups right now that have every intention of rebuilding the temple in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, which is the Temple Mount? They, you can go ahead and see, they want to rebuild the third temple. They've already got drawings, they've already got plans, they're already working towards it. And the biggest driving force for rebuilding the temple for the Jewish people is what? Not so they can say they have a great building, not so they can have a place they can meet, so they can have a place to sacrifice animals for their sins. They're already now training priests to sacrifice animals for the sins of their people. Now, dear Christian, let me tell you what. We know that the majority, this is not anti-Semitic, it's just the fact that most Jewish, hardline Jewish Orthodox Jews disregard Jesus as the Messiah. They're waiting for the Messiah. So they need forgiveness of their sins. But folks, Jesus has already taken care of that. 
His blood atoned for our sin once and for all. And unfortunately, many will still reject that. But killing an animal will be an offense to the grace that God has offered. Not to mention, I can't imagine the Peter people being okay with this. But right now, if you go to the Dome of the Rock in Jerusalem, or the Temple Mount, where the location of the Second Temple of Jerusalem was, it was destroyed in 70 A.D. If you go to it, and I'll put a picture up there, Trista, that I, that I put up there. That's actually, as you look at that picture, you see the Dome of the Rock, which is actually an Islamic temple, right in the middle of where the original temple of Jerusalem used to be. When you read the Bible and you read about the, the Sheep Gate and, and all the other gates that are in the, the Walls around Jerusalem. You can look right on Google Earth right there and see the walls of the Temple Mount. It was a real thing, folks. It was real. There was really a temple there. Jerusalem is real. Jesus is real. You can go there today. And I have never had the opportunity to go there. Maybe one day I will be. But I do know on faith that this is where Jerusalem was. And in the middle of this, and if you pull it up on your computers or phones, you can see that there's that temple there, or that mosque. Again, they worship um, Allah. It's Islamic, the Muslim. Right there where the temple of Jesus used to be, God's temple. It is now run by Palestinians. They have Islamic worship in two or three different temples within the Temple Mount. So it is controlled by the Gentiles, people that are not Jews right now. And so... Orthodox Jews actually believe that the Messiah will rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. So this means that when that temple is rebuilt, that they will initially embrace, possibly they will initially embrace their Messiah to be the Antichrist. As soon as you see the Jews, the Orthodox Jews in Jerusalem mandate and say, look, this is our Messiah Nine times out of ten, we don't know for certain until we get there, but it's probably going to be the Antichrist or somebody that works for him. And if you don't believe me that this is literal, if you were to go over and look at Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 through 12, it talks about this. And I want to share with you what verse 4 says. Verse 4 says, talking about the Antichrist, It says, he will exalt himself and defy everything that people call God and every object of worship. He, meaning the Antichrist, will even sit in the temple of God claiming that he himself is God. So for him to sit in a temple, there must be a literal temple. This is not figurative. And let's talk about the outer court of the temple. Did you know... As I said a moment ago, that right now the Temple Mount is in Gentile hands. It's governed and maintained and protected by Gentiles. If they need to to patrol the area, if they need to take care of guests that are not playing well, they will have Palestinian guards, Muslim guards, Islamic guards. And the Jewish government is allowing this. Right now there's actually a conflict over the fact that the Palestinians are trying to build another, an additional Islamic mosque within the Temple Mount 
but they're doing it without the appropriate credentials and without the paperwork. They want to assert their presence and authority over this dome of the rock. So to rebuild the temple, the Jewish temple, the temple of Jerusalem, are you with me? Okay, let's just take a breath. If nothing else for me. For them to rebuild the temple of Jerusalem, they would have to, well, the picture's not there. They would have to knock down that dome of the rock. <laughs> Good follow. They would have to knock down that dome of the rock. They would have to, to bulldoze or blow up all of those Islamic temples. How do you think that's going to work? Not too good. So, what they say is that there is actually an alternate site that people believe on the Temple Mount that represents where the temple was to where they could build the new Jewish temple and then these other temples or mosques that are built would stay where they're at. And so now when you read that and you see that, archaeologists speculate that actually the Dome of the Rock was not built on the foundation of the second Jewish temple that was destroyed. It's actually a little further north. And the Smithsonian Magazine actually says, Today the Temple Mount, a walled compound within the old city of Jerusalem, is the site of two magnificent structures, the Dome of the Rock to the north and the Alaska Mosque to the south. In the southwest stands the western wall, a remnant of the second temple and the holiest site in in Judaism. So that means somewhere along the western wall within the Temple Mount, that they believe that that could be the actual place of the Jewish temple. So now, when you read this, and you go back and you see this, if you go back and look at that scripture, it says, But do not measure the outer courtyard, for it has been turned over to the nations. They will trample the holy city for 42 months, and I will give them my two witnesses. So when you see about this outer courtyard, you see that you will have the in the great tribulation, the third temple will be rebuilt within the temple mount. And the current mosques that are there could literally be the outer courtyards that are controlled by the Gentiles. So I, I went down this deep well to tell you, it may not be figurative, it may actually be literal. Now, all of you are probably trying to hold on to this just like I am. But as we go on and we move, we see this brings in the two prophets. All of this that we study lends credibility to the authenticity and the authority of everything that John writes in this book. I'm telling you, when it comes to end times, you better be clued into what's happening in the Middle East. Things that have happened even in the last four years have been monumental. And it continues to be monumental. So let's look at the two prophets. It says these two prophets are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of all the earth. And again, this is during the Great Tribulation. If anyone tries to harm them, fire flashes from their mouths 
and consumes their enemies. This is how anyone who tries to harm them must die. They have power to shut the sky so that no rain will fall for as long as they prophesy. And they have the power to turn the rivers and the oceans into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plagues as often as they wish. I can go ahead and guarantee you when that happens, they will be plastered over every phone, every screen, every news outlet. There will be live streams. You will see these guys and they will be hated by Everyone, they will be blasted by the media. They will be blasted by politicians. So much so we see in verse 7, when they complete their testimony, the beast that comes up from the bottomless pit of the abyss will declare war against them. And he will conquer them and kill them. And their bodies will lie in the main street of Jerusalem, the great city, the city that is figuratively called Sodom and Egypt the city where the Lord was crucified. And for three and a half days, all peoples, tribes, languages, and nations will stare at their bodies. No one will be allowed to bury them. All the people who belong to the world will gloat over them and give presents to each other and celebrate the death of these two prophets who had tormented them. Now, At this point, many will believe that evil has won. Though these prophets or witnesses are not named, many commentators equate them with Moses and Elijah. Why is that? Because Moses called plagues down on the nations of Egypt, and Elijah defeated the prophets of Baal by calling fire down from heaven. But whoever they are, both of these men agreed, or I mean, both of these men, Moses and Elijah, also appeared with Christ at the Mount of Transfiguration in Matthew 17. So, folks, this is plausible. With 24-hour news channels, social media, live webcams, and cell phones, the entire world will reveal or revel in the silencing of these two who stood for God, who did miraculous signs, and were getting and pleading people to repent to God. Did you know right now, you can Google it, you can do it now or later, I don't care, But you can actually, there is a live 24-hour camera on the wailing wall that you can access right now. And you can see people praying at the wailing wall. So the fact that these two witnesses or two prophets will be dead and they will they will leave their bodies out. They're not going to try to clean it up. They want everybody to see these prophets that are dead. Boy, they're going to be happy. Oh, these guys have told us we can't do something, that we are wrong. We got them. And then I hope that when this next part happens, that the news crews are there. And the reporters reporting in front of these dead carcasses of these two witnesses. Because look look at what happens next. But after three days, three and a half days, God breathed life into them. Woo! You're talking about the walking dead. Woo! They're not going to be the walking dead. They are going to be the resurrected. And they stood up. Terror struck all who were staring at them. Then a loud voice from heaven called to the two prophets, Come up here. And they rose to heaven in a cloud as their enemies watched. I really pray we're watching from the top stands, if you know what I mean. Because hopefully the rapture has come and... Those that know the Lord are already there, and we are watching from the good seats. But I can't imagine being here and going through that. 
It says in verse 13, at the same time, there was a terrible earthquake that destroyed a tenth of the city. 7,000 people died in that earthquake, and everyone else was terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. And it says the second terror, or the woe, remember we said there were three woes. It says the second terror is past, but look, the third terror is coming quickly. So what do we see here? I'm so proud of y'all. Y'all have hung in there. What we see is everything in the great tribulation will bring glory to God. God is glorified because he is faithful and true. God does not, or God does what he says he will do and loves you enough not to operate with a double standard or a sliding scale. Can you imagine when he said that only blood shall be the forgiveness of sins? And all of a sudden he says, well, look, I would give you Jesus, but I'm going back on my word. I'm going to change that. We're going to rewrite that. No, he played by his own rules. He continues to play by his own rules. That is why when we get to the rapture and we get to the great tribulation, this is just a fulfilling of what God has promised since the very beginning of time. God requires the shedding of blood for the forgiveness of sin. Therefore, he sacrificed his son to make it happen. And we glorify God because his glory is true and real. And we acknowledge his greatness. Folks, God is a God of love, but he has set his limits. His offer of grace and forgiveness will not last forever. So wrapping up, the great tribulation will be bitter and sweet. Yes, the events of the great tribulation will be glorious, horrific, and heartbreaking, but they are necessary. As you read the book of Revelation, I hope you feel the weight of your sin. I hope you feel the weight of the sacrifice that Jesus made for your forgiveness and the wrath that forgiveness will inflict on those who refuse it. From this point on, we study Revelation and we will see, quite honestly, all hell breaking loose. So hang in there. Be ready. Be expectant and be prepared. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for our time together this morning. And again, as we have gone into the deep woods, so to speak, of this passage, Lord, this is just a foretaste of what you have included in this, Lord. How can we expect to cover everything in the short time that we've had here today? But we know enough to know that we need to be ready. We need to do all that we can so that we and our, us and our, our families and our friends and those that you put in our path will not have to go through this because it will be a terrible day. But even in these terrible days, you show mercy. So we're going to have an invitation right now. And if there's anyone here that wants to make sure that they are ready and they will not have to endure this, that they have a saving relationship with you and have your forgiveness. May they come forward at this time. If they're watching by Facebook, may they leave a message and reach out to us or their pastor or someone they trust and nail down today their relationship with you so that they will not have to endure what is coming, Lord. For it's in your name we pray. Amen.